Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of our podcast, Religion in Praxis, and I'm your host, Orni Kimitrevelli. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Emily Chanel-Justice, the director of the Tamarki Contemporary Ukraine program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. Emily is a top expert and renowned author in the field of Ukrainian studies. She pursued research on political activism and social movements among students and feminists during 2013 and 14 Euromaidan mobilizations. Her latest book, Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine, published under Toronto University of Toronto Press, delves into the 2013 and 14 Euromaidan protests and the concept of self-organization, providing a unique perspective on this critical moment in, U- in Ukraine's post-Soviet history. So join us as we dive into the fascinating topic with Emily and learn more about her work and the impact it had on our understanding of social mobilizations in Ukraine and perhaps beyond. So welcome, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So can you share with us the main focus of your book and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so the book is organized around this concept of self-organization, which is this very basic idea that if something needs to be done and you're a person that can do that thing, then you should simply do it. Um, and in, in the book, I really look at how self-organization is the driving political force behind the Euromaidan protests of 2013 and 2014. Um, and the reason that I follow that concept is because I was working with leftist activists, um, mostly in higher education and feminist activism, um, and self-organization really drove their protests. And that meant protesting uh, not for political parties or political figures, but working very far outside of political institutions in this self-organized way. Um, And that's really how the Euromaidan protests were organized. They were not fighting for a particular political party or person, which is also what sets them apart from previous protests in Ukraine and really in a lot of places. Um, and, And so what I wanted to look at was how those, how this, what I saw as this very leftist oriented concept, um, started uh, and then infiltrated the protests became kind of the main organizing factor. And then I also take it past 2014. So I look at how self-organization also um, inspired and, and helped people understand how to address Russia's first invasion and annexation of Crimea, and then later um, the the invasion of the Eastern regions in Donbass. Um, so it's a, it's a book that, that, um, was really, it felt really uh, oriented toward this particular moment in time of 2013 and 2014. But after last year, uh, I started to really think about how actually it's it's very much connected to everything that's going on today. And, um, you know, thinking about how much those protests, the Euromaidan protests influence how Ukrainians see themselves today um, has been really it's been really interesting to just see how important that moment actually was, even though, you know, I knew it was important at the time, but not in the way that I think it's important now. Mm. Can you tell us about the concept of self-organization, how it emerged in the context of Euromaidan protests? 
Yeah. So it's, um, like I said, it's kind of, I, 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 I came to this concept through the activists that I was working with. Right. So they come at it from this very, um, you know, leftist ideological philosophical way of thinking about doing things outside of institutions outside of the state, hence the title without the state, right? Ordinary people have a better sense of what needs to happen. And if they're capable of doing things, then they should just do them. And so for them, that ranged from, you know, organizing mass street protests because they they knew how to do that. Um, so the, the book starts with a story from a, a woman who is a, a leftist and feminist activist who helped evacuate people from Crimea in 2014, right after the mobilization, sorry, the annexation, or perhaps it was before for the annexation after the invasion. I, I'm not sure of the timeline exactly, but um, but basically, you know, the Ukrainian government was in, it was not co- consolidated at that point. It was really chaotic and, and the Ukrainian government, which should have been helping people um, get out of the peninsula, they couldn't do it. And so regular people just went to the border, went to went into Crimea and, and helped people get out. Um, so the the and and the activists that I worked with, I should note, are the ones who framed this as self-organization, right? So it wasn't um so it was something they saw as this concept that shifted over time. Um and what happened in the protests was that for those of you who have followed, you know, the Euromaidan when it happened, you might recall that in the beginning, opposition political figures were a big part of the protests. And this is really early on in, in 2013. And but over the course of the protests, political figures are really marginalized. And this starts in, in Viv, in the protests in Viv, where protesters decide no one from a political party can get up on stage to be, you know, one of the mobilizers or, or um, you know, they just don't want to hear from political parties, right? They want it to be about people in the square who've come out to protest. Um, and in Kiev, where I mostly was, um, the political parties would show up sometimes or people from political parties would show up sometimes, but they were really not the main force behind the protest. And so that's really the key thing that makes those protests self-organized. Um, instead of asking a political party to organize, you know, oh, look, we're going to camp out on the square. We need food. We need medicine. We need ex- regular people brought that stuff. Right. It wasn't um, and it wasn't in the name of, of any political party. And those are the kind of key things that make those protests self-organized. And additionally, the important thing about it is how successful the protests were. So it's not just that, okay, we know how to organize a protest. We know how to organize, uh, you know, um, uh, occupy the the main square, occupy this building, but we also succeeded in achieving the goals that we set out to do with this method. And so that's why self-organization becomes so important now to how Ukrainians think about themselves, because they know that they can make a difference through their own power, not by waiting for somebody else or not by relying on someone else. Mm. So Maidan kind of was a test for that in a way, and it gives this self-belief that without politicians, you can actually make a difference. Absolutely. And I mean, there are other major protest events in Ukrainian history that also show, um, I think they are self-organized in their way. But if we think about like the Orange Revolution, so for instance, the, the occupation of of key public spaces, right? The occupation of the Maidan as Zelensky, that happens over several times over Ukraine's history. That happens in the Orange Revolution in 2004, but those, so we see the tactics of self-organization, but the Orange Revolution is organized for a political figure. And so while we see the tactic being successful, we also see the disappointment in 
what people achieved through those protests. So I think that was really key for people who understood during Euromaidan not to organize for a political figure because, you know, we did that before and boy, did that not really do what we wanted it to do. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons that Euromaidan is so outside of party politics in terms of how it was um, structured as, in terms of how the goals that that protesters laid out. And it's interesting how it's, uh, and it's fascinating, this trajectory that you're describing, but also interesting, then there we have emergence of politicians as a result. Right. And how does that, I mean, how did the adoption of self-organization change mm -hmm. people's views on relationships between citizens? and their mm -hmm. state and the political elites right. because some of the political elites following the Maidan had some connections with business elites and were not yeah. necessarily representative of an average Ukrainian. Absolutely. So I think um, the big difference is that the protests allow for Ukrainian citizens to make a different kind of claim on the state. Um, Obviously, they have a track record of we're going to ask you for this. And if you can't give it to us, we're going to come back out into the streets. Right. The threat of, of people can take you out of power. Mm -hmm. um, that's a real threat. Right. Because it worked. Um, I think, you know, with with Poroshenko, who gets elected in May of 2014 after the protests, um, you know, it's a very interesting case because he was certainly um, positioned himself as someone who supported the protests and therefore was legitimate as someone who was not trying to co-opt them, but was, you know, wanted to support them. Although his history, he doesn't necessarily have a squeaky clean, you know, pro-European history. He's he's connected with party regions, right? Um, and certainly I would I would say he's an oligarch of some type. He's maybe not the same type of oligarch as those who who consolidated resources like like previous presidents, Yulia Tymoshenko, all of those kind of key figures. Um, so he's not that different from previous politicians, but I also think because of the invasion annexation of Crimea, there's an understanding in Ukraine um, that unity is a key part of those elections in 2014, um, which is, I think, kind of why he wins in the first round, um, because it's obvious that Ukraine needs a stronger government. So I think so I think what happens in that aftermath is you have this. Um, you don't have a, a clear political leader who rises to the top during the protests. And so in the aftermath, you have this reckoning with what the what citizens want the state to look like, what they want to ask for from the state. And then Poroshenko gets to be the first one to try to meet those expectations, which, of course, he can't. It would have been impossible for anybody. Um, but, you know, his political trajectory to be very um pro you know his whole campaign slogan in, in 2020 was or yeah 2020 2019 sorry was um language army faith um it was very exclusive to a lot of people uh and so that i think is why we get this opening for for Zelensky to come in and position himself as completely different um and and win such a wide percentage in the elections i would also say it was also inevitable for Poroshenko to experience the post-protest disappointment. I don't think there was any, it's, it was the same thing with Yushchenko, right? It, after the protests put him in office, he doesn't do everything people have expected of him. It was it was not possible to do those things. And, and Poroshenko, there's plenty of legitimate criticism about, you know, his allies and the role of oligarchs and the lack of de-oligarchization, right? Lack of promises coming true. Um, but I think it was almost inevitable that he he ended up leaving 
presidency with a low popularity rating because certainly people were going to be disappointed. Those protests, you know, they asked for a lot and no one could really have delivered uh, what they asked for. Mm. <clears throat> so my question will be about maybe generalizability of those findings in Kiev to Ukraine and yeah. beyond. How does the focus on self-organization in Kiev? And of course, you mentioned rightly that it was happening. The whole Euromaidan was happening in Kiev. That's kind of the scope limitations in a way. But mm -hmm. uh, how does the focus on self-organization in Kiev contribute or limit our understanding of the Euromaidan protest on a national scale? Mm -hmm. And you spoke of Lviv uh, briefly, but can you elaborate about the generalizability of those findings? Yeah, um, it's. I think <clears throat> it's. Um, it's certainly worth thinking about in a bigger picture. I also did research in Cherkasy, which is a couple of hours south of Kiev. Um, so still in the cave region, but, um, you know, and, and very central. So not that much of an outlier in terms of how we think about regional divisions in Ukraine. And what I found there was that the tactics were mirrored. So the people in Cherkasy, and, and part of this is because there was throughout the protest, especially during the tent camp in Kiev. So when people occupied the square, which was December of 2013, there was a lot of movement in and out of Kiev. So people would come for a couple of days, stay in Kiev, and then go back to the cities where they were, and often go to the protests in their home cities. So this happened with a lot of people I knew in Lviv. I would run into them on, on the square in Kiev, and they would be like, oh, yeah, I just came for a couple of days. I'm going to go back. Um, Lviv is a little bit of an outlier because the the mayor uh, was so, so supportive of the protests that he told people they should go to Kiev to help out because, you know, um, they Lviv was so supportive. Um, but in Cherkasy, it was a, a really interesting example because people went to Kiev, figured out the tactics that were working, came back to Cherkasy, occupied buildings like the regional administration. Um, so they had a similar tactic and they also experienced really severe repression. Um, a, a woman was killed by, by um, in the protests that happened to the struggle over occupation of that, that particular building. The scale, though, of course, is so substantially smaller. And that's the real question. Um, you know, you see a lot of different examples of people mimicking the tactics of the protests in Kyiv. But really, um, in terms of scale, Kyiv is, is the most substantial one. Um, and I think that makes it really interesting because there's been a lot of debate and there continues to be a lot of debate about whether or not most Ukrainians actually supported the Euromaidan protests. And I'm sure that their answer changes when you when you ask them, right? Over the or how you ask <laughs> and how you ask, absolutely. But we also, I mean, we saw mass mass protests in in Donetsk, for example. There was a very large pro-Ukraine and same in Kharkiv. Like lots of eastern cities that have this perception of being only pro-Russian, it's at least complicated. Obviously, Odessa is another example where a lot of people were killed in a fire. Um, those were people who were not supportive of the Euromaidan, right? So we have a lot of really complex narratives that I think, especially in the first few years after the protests, it makes it really hard to understand actually what they signified for most people. Um, and I, I think, I'm, like I said, I, I think depending on when you ask people, it would change the meaning for them. Some people um, you know, maybe I talked to a lot of people who, um, after the fact have, have kind of thought about their, the support in the hearts and minds of, of people, right? Not necessarily people who want to go out into the square and potentially experience violence, potentially experience, you know, interactions with police, but in their hearts and minds, they do support the Euromaidan. So that seems like it doesn't matter in 2014, but it matters now, right? 
because that is one of the things where you you have an identity in Ukraine that shifts to being more strongly pro-European since those protests happen. Um, and that's something that I don't think the protests themselves measured. So to sort of summarize how to answer that question, I think it's important to understand the geography and the distribution of the protests around Ukraine and how many protests there were. But I think the number of people at each protests each protest isn't necessarily the only measure of whether people supported them. And that's really important for us to remember now when there's so much Russian narrative and so much Russian information about, you know, how this is not some sort of, you know, pro, all, uh, uh, Ukraine-wide belief in a European future, that sort of thing. Um, I do think I do think those measures are important. Mm. How did the self-organization practice affect or practices affect the political spectrum in Ukraine by large, including leftists, feminists, student mm-hmm. activists, as well as the far right, far right groups? Yeah, I think actually this is a question that I think if you had asked me in 2015 or 16, I would answer totally differently than I would answer now. And I think that's also something that's really super interesting about these protests. So understanding how they've influenced over over time. Um so one thing that we saw in the in the immediate aftermath of the of the Euromaidan was a consolidation of far right. And that was partly because there were so the far right parties did not win in the elections after that. So they didn't get representation in the parliament, but they did have representation in Poroshenko's cabinet. And so for that reason, um, people on the left side of the spectrum perceived the Poroshenko government as being much more pro-right and nationalist in a bad way um, than had previously been the case. So, and I would I would agree with that assessment. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a variety of ways to look at how much power the far right has in Ukraine. Parliamentary representation will tell you that there is none. Um, but that was not true in the aftermath of, of, of the Euromaidan protests. Um, I would say that the far right, the so the people who I've worked with, leftist activists who monitored far right violence, it was a lot of street violence against protests, especially protests that were focused on feminism, gender equality, LGBT rights, those sorts of things. Um, also, sometimes leftist protests would get would experience violence as well. Um, and and that's not that different than the than the presence of the far right before Euromaidan. So I also don't necessarily think we have an emboldening or a or a breadth or an expansion of far right power. Um, it's really just replicated. However, what I will say is that I think I would really assess the spectrum to have expanded more than just far, more than just right, right? Um, and I say that because when Zelensky was elected, when he was running, um, we all remember that he didn't really have that much of a platform that was specific. And many leftists saw that as an opportunity. So they knew that Poroshenko had allied with far right people. He His slogan was army faith, no, sorry, language army faith, right? Which is a very, you know, Ukraine Christian nation kind of um, perception of that slogan. Uh, and and Zelensky, you know, he comes from a Russian-speaking Jewish family from from Kriviv. He comes from a, a not a specific enclave of traditional political power in Ukraine. Not that people knew what he would do, but it was the fact that well, we know what Poroshenko will do, but we don't know what Zelensky will do, so maybe that'll be better. And since then, I will say 
uh, I do see, um, and so so the question, I'm, I'm using these presidential elections as kind of bookends, but I don't know that the president is the definitive reason things have been like this, but we have seen, for instance, less violence against LGBT pride parades. We've also seen pride parades in more different cities around Ukraine than ever before that have not been attacked. Um, and that's that's a shift. That's an actual shift in um, the how people are able to represent themselves and their political positions um, without experiencing counter protests that turns violent. And I'm, I'm using LGBT rights and pride parades as an example because that's a cause that leftists have mobilized themselves around for many years and that they often pointed to me as a place where they experienced violence from the far right. So I would say, um, you know, I actually, before the war started, I was rather hopeful about this broadening of political representation in kind of public spaces. Again, not necessarily representation in parliament, right? We're not seeing more leftist parties being elected, but we're also not seeing more rightist parties being elected, but we are seeing more different kinds of political identities that people are public about that don't result in, in interpersonal violence. Um, so in that sense, I, I actually do think that Ukraine was kind of on this trajectory toward pluralism. Um, I, I mean, I would link it to Euromaidan, although obviously, you know, at this point, it, we're almost talking about 10 years. So that's a really long time. Um, but but I do think that, you know, that creates the opportunity um, for people to sort of think about pluralism as how they want their society to function uh, instead of, you know, only focusing on on one kind of national idea of how to participate in politics. Yeah, we, we spoke about the significance of inclusion of the far, far right groups in the analysis of self-organization during Maidan and how it, this is this phenomenon was contextualized. I wonder, and again, our topic is um, slightly different from the broader topic of this podcast, Religion in Praxis. I wonder if your firsthand experience of your Maidan protest has church presence in it and religious presence. How significant was religious presence from your own experience and uh, was it or not important at all? Well, um, for me, it wasn't, but that was, I think, because of who I was with. And I think that's something that's really important to understand about these protests, um, because if there's been so many narratives about Euromaidan was X or these are the people who were there. And it was actually a huge space, physical space, huge physical space. Um, lots of people, I mean, really hundreds of thousands of people. and people who came from really diverse political backgrounds. And so because I was largely with students, leftist, feminists, uh, I wasn't really interacting with religious figures at all. However, I've read plenty of really great research, you know, published about how present religious figures were and how essential they were to others. Uh, and I think that really speaks to the diversity of the protests that often gets erased because the narrative of what those protests meant is so significant. Um, and so I think that's really, I've always found that really interesting. Mm. I mean, I will say, for example, the, um, you know, the, the first, uh, the night, the first few nights of violence, um, it was churches, you know, that opened their doors to allow people to seek, seek refuge. Here, and, Patriarchat, yeah, specifically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, I mean, I can tell you, in 2013 and 2014, I did not understand the difference between the different traditions, um, but have since understood 
how politically they aligned with the protesters or not. And, and that's very interesting. Um, I mean, I remember just uh, one really cold day in December planning, we were standing um, in St. Michael's Cathedral in the kind of, or, or um, there's like a, you know, a kind of courtyard before some of the main churches and we were standing in there. I mean, that spot was always really welcoming to the protesters. Um, so I think it's one of those things that's sort of like in the background, but it was never essential to how I understood the protest, but seeing how, um, how churches roles fit into the protest afterward has been a really interesting um, thing to understand. How have self-organized practices influenced the formation of new networks of, of mutual aid in Ukraine and beyond in the war in the wake of the Russian renewed invasion? Because you mentioned briefly that it kind of laid the foundation and belief in people that, well, we can organize without the state. Yeah. And clearly we see this uh, trends now as, as Ukraine is fighting in this kind of draconian invasion. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the key thing um i think a lot of the networks that we see now that are effective are networks that started in 2014 so part of part of what's um effective is that people already knew people who could help so um it i think it was really a re-emergence of a lot of those networks but but also um I, I don't know, but also not. I mean I I found what I found among the people that I know in, in Ukraine is that they have within the network, the big network of people that I worked with, they've sort of branched into their own specific um, ways of mobilizing. So for instance, those who have, for example, medical background or any experience in combat immediately signed up for the territorial defense and have been mobilized to the front. People who didn't have that experience or didn't want to enlist in that way have done humanitarian aid distribution. And that has ranged from people who um, have mostly focused on displaced people uh, and so have gone to places that received a lot of displaced people and they helped with humanitarian aid there. Or I know a lot of people who gather, you know, gather equipment, gather material, and then they take it to either places close to the front lines, places that have recently been liberated um, and that sort of thing. Um, people who are, you know, um, understand how medical system works, that, right? They try to distribute medicine and medical needs, that sort of thing. So what I have found that has been really fascinating is that people have, and this is what I think the principle of self-organization is, they figured out where they can be the most helpful and they've oriented their help toward that. So rather than assuming that there's only one way to mobilize and one way to help, people have really understood how they position themselves to be most effective. And that I think is exactly the lesson from Euromaidan, which is, okay, I'm gonna do this role, you're gonna do that role. And together we need all the roles in order for our goals to be achieved. And I think that people still understand, right? Not everybody needs to mo mobilize in the territorial defenses because somebody needs to deliver medicine and water filters and, you know, winter coats, right? There, people need to do all the things. Um, and so I think that's been really interesting to just sort of see how people can be very um, reflex, reflexive and sort of intentional about how they see themselves in and how they see their most important role um, in responding to the invasion. Mm. And how have the Romaitan experience impacted the future of self-organization in Ukraine and maybe other countries. What do you think about that? Facing similar challenges mm -hmm. as we speak. Georgia is going through a really catastrophic uh, uh, kind of a legal initiative by the led by the government 
about the influence of foreign agents law, something that will be pretty much uh, censoring the functioning of not just non-governmental organizations, but also academia and humanitarian organizations, labeling them as as, as agents of foreign influence. If that law passes, definitely Georgia will uh, experience some level of protests and maybe potentially a bigger protests. Um, so what's the sort of the self-organization story that can be like generalized? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. Um, I, I And I'm curious because I, well, for me, the big question is how come this has not happened in Russia yet, right? Isn't that Vladimir Putin's greatest fear? Isn't that the explanation for all the violence since 2014, right? Is Is the prevention of something similar to this. Uh, and, and certainly we haven't seen that. Um, we, there's a, a couple of, of, of really good studies. And I would say Olena Nikolayenko, she's a political scientist, has done the best work on the sharing of tactics in the early 2000s around the different color revolutions, as, as we often call them. Um, and so she, she compares, um, protests in Serbia, pro- protests in, um, I believe in Georgia. in Georgia, I think she talks about Georgia and Ukraine, um, and, and Armenia maybe as well. Um, it's been a while since I read the book, but we see the sharing and that, and what she actually finds is the intentional sharing of tactics. So not just, oh, I'm witnessing this, let me try to replicate it, but people in Serbia sending information to people in Ukraine so that they can recreate similar structures. Um, with the the increased sharing on social media and just our inter, you know, our increased connectivity, um, I think it's, it's a really interesting time to learn from this experience. Um, you know, the, the tactics that were used on Maidan certainly were not perfect. And I, and I wouldn't say that there's no criticisms to be had, but they were very visible in specific ways. And so I think, um, I, you know, I do think it's something that, that others can learn from, but I also, you know, uh, it also has to do with the conditions, right? It has to do with a president who, you know, has power, but also has a shaky grasp on power um, and a population that's willing to literally risk death to make the change that they want to see. Um, that's a that's a very particular set of circumstances. Um, so I'll be very curious to see if it's replicable elsewhere now. Um, I think another key part of the story was that the media in Ukraine at that time was still almost entirely oligarch owned. And so the stories about the protests were controlled very intentionally. And that's when we start to see the use of social media to share information become really essential. So like, I I just remember watching somebody with a GoPro on, on a Twitter you know, had posted a GoPro video on Twitter of what was happening. And that was the best way to get information. So these protests are also really essential for the change in the media landscape and how the media has a role in covering, you know, opposition. Um, So in that way, I I think we have another interesting example. And that's also part of the circumstances that are essential. It's, It's about how you mobilize one another, because people also, that would mobilize people, right? You would say, oh, I don't really care about these protests. You know, it's just a bunch of crazy people, whatever, however you want to position it. And then you see a video of riot police officer beating up an 18 year old student. And you're like, that's unacceptable. I need to be out there the next day. Right. So those are the types of things that inform people of how they need to react. Um, I I mean, I still don't totally understand how it became what it became, which was an absolutely massive mobilization that completely removed an unacceptable president from power. 
Um, that's a pretty dramatic, I think, trajectory. Uh, so whether or not that can be repl- replicable anywhere is a huge question. But I do think tactically, you know, there mm. are things we can learn from the protests that that can certainly be replicated mm. um, in effective ways. And the last question will be how the findings of your book contribute to our understanding of the role of citizens in shaping their own communities and political futures. And we'll close here. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think that there's a couple of different scales, right? Because certainly the scale of mass protests resulting in change of president, that's one way. And that is a way that citizens can, you know, impact their society. Um, but one thing that I found among the activists that I worked with in particular was that they were, they sort of refocused after the protests, right? You have this massive goal of, you know, let's remove the president, let's remove corruption. Um that can only be achieved so easily and so quickly. And then you you sort of recalibrate after that. So people got really focused on sort of more localized initiatives, so neighborhood initiatives. Um, They wanted to improve their immediate surroundings. People often shifted to focus on one particular type of activism that they instead of trying to say, okay, I'm, a, I'm doing, you know, I'm a feminist and a student activist and a this activist, and, right? I'm going to sort of focus all my energies on something that I really can dive into. Um, and I do think that's something that, so that was really pr- pr- prominent among the people that I worked with, but I don't think it was exclusive to them. I think that was true for a lot of people, especially after such a huge thing that you've participated in, um, you know, trying to trying to focus on something that you have a more direct kind of control over, I think, is really important. And I will say that the decentralization reforms that were begun in Ukraine in 2015 represent that to some extent. So on, I think that's a really, and that's something that, you know, has yet to be really deeply studied because there's still new reforms and obviously the war sort of changes things. But um, this idea that the government itself understands that people want more control directly that and they'll they'll you know they'll make that happen or the government can make it a legal mechanism um and and the fact that they have done that and have you know in many ways sort of empowered lower more localized governments um to be potentially more representative of citizens that's a huge um, that's a huge shift in, in obviously what we see from previous Ukrainian presidents who are all about consolidating power um, among themselves, among their own parties, among their own allies. Mm-hmm. In conclusion, we would like to thank uh, Dr. Emily Channel-Justice for joining us today and uh, sharing her insightful research and analysis on Euromaidan protests and the concept of self-organization, which was especially fascinating in Ukraine. Her book, Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine, provides a unique perspective on this crucial moment in Ukraine's post-Soviet history and has encouraged us to think more deeply about relationships between citizens and their state. So we hope that our listeners have found this podcast informative and thought-provoking, and we encourage you to continue your um, own exploration of this fascinating topic and follow, of course, Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute's research. So thank you for turning, turning in, and until next time. Mm-hmm.